so I was glad to hear uh, Brent call what we do uh, during these three weeks in June the pastor swap, because that's what we call it, a covenant, even though I don't think it's an official name, call it the pastor swap, which is a little weird sounding, um, and maybe we should come up with a better name for it. But um, regardless of uh, how strange it sounds, I love sharing in worship with all of you. Uh, and being here, and I love knowing that your pastor is doing the same thing uh, with us. And I hope that seeing my face up here, uh, a strange face, is a small pointer to the fact that we are all part of something that is a lot larger than ourselves. And, and when I say that, I don't just mean our little tribe of, of Presbyterian churches. I mean all of the people around the world that God calls the church wherever she is found. And it is, in particular, a real great privilege to be joined with you all in mission. At Covenant, we feel privileged and honored uh, to be connected with you all in mission. So this year, what we're going to do during the Pastor Swap is look each week at one part of that beautiful Trinitarian benediction that is at the very end of 2 Corinthians, where Paul blesses his friends by saying, uh, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you. So this morning... We're going to look at the love of God the Father. Um, and so I'm going to read 1 John 4, 7 through 12. It's printed in your order of worship, so you can follow along as I read from 1 John 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. The word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. So, Father, we thank you uh, for this word that we have read and heard together, and we ask now that you would do what you are always happy to do through this word, that you would lead us to the word that bears our flesh, who's sitting at your right hand right now praying for all of us, that you would show us the grace of Jesus and that you would change us by it. And we know that you can do this, and so we ask that you'd meet every one of us in here in whatever place we find ourselves, in whatever place it is that we need to be met in, those of us who feel really close to you and uh, near to you, those of us who feel really far away from you because we have been running away or because you just seem distant or we are really struggling and feeling alone, those of us who are here this morning who are not even entirely sure why we're here and we feel a little bit bored and distracted and curious about why we're sitting here, you can meet every one of us where we are and so we ask that you would, and that you'd be gracious to show us Jesus' love for us. In Christ's name, amen. So I want to start by letting you in on something that a lot of people, um, my wife being chief among them, thinks is a little bit weird, a little bit strange. 
and that is that I do not like maple syrup at breakfast. Yeah. Some, did someone say, whoa? Yeah. I do not like maple syrup at breakfast. And now it's not because the taste of it is off-putting to me or anything like that. It's fine. I like using it in cooking. Um, and that's a fine use for maple syrup. I know that maple syrup is the real deal. I know that it requires a lot of human interaction. It's made in small batches. I know there's this grading system for maple syrup and people are super fanatical about it. Uh, I know all of that stuff and usually that would make me a little bit more attracted to something. Um, but there is really only one reason why uh, I don't like maple syrup and that is that it is nothing compared to the alternative. I am a log cabin guy <laughs> all the way, all the way. I like corn syrup that is injected with artificial flavors. More than I like real maple syrup. I cannot explain that to you, so I will not try to explain it to you. That's just the way it is. And in my home, um, that means that my breakfast table gets set with two kinds of syrup. Right On the one side of the table, there is pure maple syrup. And on the other side of the table, there is this thing that often gets to referred to derisively as daddy syrup. Um, and sometimes this leads to a pretty unwelcoming, uh, unwelcome thing happening. Sometimes the breakfast table will be set with all the good stuff, bacon and pancakes or waffles and fruit slices and coffee and all the good stuff. And we'll be ready to thank God for it and dig in and I'll look around and realize that I haven't stocked up on the log cabin and that it's missing. And I think to myself, man, I'm going to have to choke this stuff down with real maple syrup. <laughs> and whenever that happens, I always think the same thing. I do not think I can do it. What good is a pancake without artificially flavored corn syrup on top? In my mind, not much. I know that it's messed up. But I'm telling you that because that part of John's letter that we just read together says something really similar. John says something really similar. He tells the church that there is really only one thing that matters. And that if that one thing is missing, there is a huge problem, a wildly significant problem that needs to be addressed. Here's how he puts it. Anyone who does not love God does not know God. That's about as straightforward as it gets. He says if the church does not love, they do not know God. If love is missing, you may as well call the whole thing off. So that is the one thing that John is absolutely desperate for his friends to get. He wants them to grow in love. He wants them to grow in their ability to apprehend what the real thing is. He wants them to grow in their ability to receive love. And he wants them to grow in their ability to be able to give love, to live it out in this world. And at the heart of all of those three things is the towering and mysterious love of God the Father for people like us. So here's how John starts. He says, Beloved, let us love one another. That is a straightforward appeal to the church to love. Now, no one really knows why John wrote this letter. There's no place in it where he says specifically, this is what the problem is. But if you read this letter from beginning to end, uh, which would be a great thing to do, by the way, this afternoon, if you, if you read it from beginning to end, it will be very clear to you that there is a problem in these churches, that they have been torn by conflict, and that some people have left these churches that John is writing to. 
And so he is writing to pastor the folks who are still there. And this idea, the idea that our relationships with one another need to be characterized by love, this idea comes up again and again and again in this letter. So much so that you have to wonder if maybe whatever the conflict was could have been avoided if these people had been ordering their common life around love. We don't know, but what we do know is clear. John is telling them that they ought to be ordering their common life around love right now. And it's not like he's saying that this is, uh, you know, one thing among a group of things that they might want to try out that could be really helpful to them. It's not one option among a bunch of options that they might want to try on to see if it helps them. He is saying that this is the one thing, that this is the only thing, right? That it is the one thing that is needful for God's people to do, to have, and to do. If they love, all of the other particulars of their lives will fall into place and order themselves and make sense out of that love. Love is that important, church. It is the ordering principle of the Christian life. It is the essence. It is the badge that we wear. You know, the Apostle Paul says something really similar to this um, in his letter to the Corinthian church in that passage that we often hear a lot around this time of year. Uh, during wedding season, 1 Corinthians 13. If you know that passage, you know that Paul says, you know, he lists all of these things that would be great to have and that would be great to do. He says, you know, you could speak in the tongues of men and angels and you could have prophetic powers and you could have the ability to understand all mysteries and you could even have all faith, faith that is so strong that you would be able to move mountains. Right? You could have and do all of those things and have a hundred other great things beside them, Paul says, and without love, they would be absolutely nothing. Without love, it is just a big, fat mess of noisy, clattering nothing. A bunch of sound and fury signifying nothing. So John, for his part, begins by laying out a couple of reasons why we ought to be loving one another. First, he says, because love is from God. God is the source of love. He is its genesis. He is its fountainhead. He is its truest arbiter of meaning. And since this is true, John says, it should follow that whoever loves is showing evidence that they have been born of God. They show evidence that they love God. And, and that they know him. And then the opposite, of course, is true as well. John says if we don't love, then we give evidence that we don't know God. Now, I don't know exactly how that sounds to you, um, but that is really unsettling to me. I mean, if what John is saying is true, then it means that it's possible for us to have lots of gifts it's possible for us to have lots of talents. It's possible for us to do really, really great things out there in the world and do well in life and carry on well in life and skate through because of our competencies and our skillfulness and thoughtfulness and creativity. It is possible for all of that to be true and we can still be devoid of the only thing that matters. It can be completely absent and then all of it would mean nothing. You might remember Jesus talked about this, right? He said, there's this one thing that's going to make everyone know that you are my followers. And it wasn't our creativity. It wasn't our power or influence. 
wasn't our skills, <laughs> wasn't our ability to do really good things, wasn't our ability to plant churches and throw good programs together. Jesus said, here's one thing. This is how people will know that you follow me. If you love each other. So it's unsettling to me to hear this, not because I know that it is possible in theory to live life and to do it in a way that appears really great without love. It is unsettling to me because, because I do it. Because I walk like that sometimes, doing a bunch of stuff, even that looks really good, and I do it without love. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you know what I mean. And so the good news for people like us is that is precisely why John is writing these things. Because he is holding out something better for us. He's holding out something more for us. He's holding out the kind of life that we have actually been created for. And this is what takes John to the second reason that we should love. It is at the heart of what he means to say. And I'm telling you, church, you could think about it every day for the rest of your life. And if we did that, which would be really good, we would never get to the bottom of it. He says that we should love one another because God is love. God is love. Now, it would be really hard to overstate how strange this would have sounded to the culture in which John wrote. Because conceptions of God and ways of talking and thinking about God in the Greco-Roman culture were very different than this, incredibly different than this. Right? They hovered around Aristotle's ideas of God you know, being pure intelligence, or Plato's notions of God being the good that is beyond us. Right? And here's what John, the apostle, is doing. He's waltzing into the playground of the philosophers, and he is saying, you guys are all off. God is love. He has bound himself to his people in love and he will be bound in love to them forever even when it costs him everything. That is who God is. And finally, that this leads John to the place where he paints a picture of what real love looks like. I mean, it's one thing to be told that we should love. It is another thing altogether to be told what love really is. What is it really? And I probably don't need to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. And that is that our, our world, the culture in which we live, is really, really, really confused about what love looks like. And our culture is really, really confused about what it means to be the lovers that we were made to be. There are so many counterfeits on offer. There are so many dead ends to what real love is that are... In front of us, there's so many pernicious substitutes for real love, and they lead to lots of pain and lots of sadness. And some of us, I'm guessing here this morning, know that from the inside out. So what is love? What is it really? John decides not to define it. Instead, he paints a picture of what love is. God is love, he says, and this is how the love of God was made manifest among us. Instead of lining out a textbook definition of love, he invites his friends to remember what it looked like. 
when they were invaded by love and what it looked like when their lives were changed by love. He says, God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That is the picture. For John, and really for that matter, all of the rest of the writers of the New Testament, love is never defined ever by any kind of romantic ideal or emotional pull or sentimental notion. Cultural ideas of what love is shift and change all of the time. The way we feel about stuff comes and goes. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me when I say that, right? The, the best romances in the world, right? The greatest romances in the world, the ones that we write about in our best stories, the ones that we sing about in our best songs. I mean, these things are pointers to the real thing. That's why we find them beautiful. That's why we find them so compelling, because they are beautiful shadows of the real thing, but they do not define the real thing. They're pointers because they point to the kind of love that we were made for, and John is talking about the kind of love we were made for. For John, love is fully and completely defined by the self-giving of God for his people. It is fully and completely defined by the self-giving of God for his people. Love is giving of ourselves for the good of the other. That is what love is. We give ourselves for the good of the other. If you want to know what love is, John says, then you don't need to look any further than what God has done for the church. Again, the Apostle Paul says something really similar to his friends at the church in Rome. He says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so John is just asking his friends to remember their own experience, that the God of all things, the God of everything, gave everything for their forgiveness and for their good and for their flourishing. And he did it at great cost, and he did it with patience and kindness, and he did it without a trace of regret. He did it joyfully and he did it happily. And this is what love does for people like you and me. God has made us the objects of real self-giving love and now we know it from the inside out. And it is the kind of love that we were created for in the first place. And I think just a minute's reflection will help us to realize that there is all kinds of power and there's all kinds of possibility in receiving love like that. That kind of gracious, self-giving love. You know, to those of us who are inclined for all of the million reasons people like us are inclined to believe that somehow we have to earn God's favor or we have to do stuff to keep his favor on us, and I'm sure there are some of us in here who wouldn't say that with our lips, but we live it. I know that from my own life. For those of us who think that we've got to do a bunch of stuff to earn God's favor or to keep it, we can just stop doing that. We can stop doing that. Because we can rest in the fact that we have been loved and that we will be loved by the God who has bound himself to us in love at great cost to himself and not to us. 
And you know what happens when we believe that? You know what happens when we begin to live out of something like that that is true? You know what we find is that maybe for the first time in our lives, we're actually free to love other people and not make them earn it by doing, you know, them doing what we want them to do or being the kind of people that we like or want to hang out with. We can just love other because they are, because that's how we've been loved. You know, and what about those of us who are here this morning who are convinced that we are unlovable people? And I know in a room this size, some of us here this morning believe, even if we wouldn't say it with our lips, we believe in our being that we are not lovable because of something that we have done or something that's been done to us or because of that thing that we can't kick, that addiction that has a death grip on us. Well, if that's you, then listen to the good news. God loves people like us. He loves us in that state. We are not unlovable. We have been made the objects of the white-hot love of God the Father. And his welcome for people like us is as sure as it is wide. And we walk into it with the open hands of repentance and faith. That is the kind of love that we have been loved by God with. And it means there is hope for us to change. It means there is hope for us to be different, to be renewed, to be made into brand new people. So here is where John, in his way, finally returns to where he started. He says, Beloved, if God has loved us like this, then we ought to love one another. And hopefully it's clear that this isn't the kind of ought that, you know, comes from somebody wagging a finger in your face and just saying, this is what you're supposed to do. If you've ever been the, you know, the recipient of that kind of uh, oughtness, you know that it doesn't do anything to change your heart. Never has, never will. Never change my heart, doubt it ever will. But that is not the kind of oughtness that we're faced here when John says that we ought to love one another. We have been the objects of self-giving love. And so that means that we can hear this ought with hope and we can hear it with joy because that love is working in us, changing us, giving us the patience, giving us the perseverance that we need to love others like we have been loved. And church, I got to tell you, that is exactly what this world that is desperately impoverished of love, that's exactly what this world needs. That's what Hinsdale needs. That's what Palos needs. That's what Chicago needs. And it means, in part, that people like us need to begin to practice love. We need to begin to make a habit out of love. And I know that word has negative connotations, right? Like, oh, it's just going to be rote then? We're just going to make a habit and it's just going to be rote? But that's not what I mean. I mean that we need to work at practicing self-giving love so that over time it becomes less and less work and more and more just what we do. We need to practice loving like this so that it becomes a part of our reflex. It is our reflex in our families and in our workplaces and with our friends and together here in church, right? We don't get better um, at tennis or golf without practicing. And we don't get better at our jobs without practicing. And I'm gonna tell you, we don't get better at love without practicing love. Because love is not some ethereal substance that's floating around in the air that we can hook up with. And love isn't a hole in the ground that you fall into. 
right? Love is something different, very different than that. Love always looks like something. It looks like concrete, red-blooded, thick actions of costly service for others. That's what love looks like. And you don't fall into that. You plan for it. And you seek opportunities to do it. And then you do it. And then you repeat it again and again and again. And people like us can get better and better and better at it. And you know, what happens when we do that, I think, is incredibly breathtaking, right? I can never fully get my head around what happens when we do that. John says uh, at the end there, he says, no one has ever seen God. Now that's a hallmark of John's theology. He says that at the very beginning of his gospel. Uh, we sometimes read it around Christmas time, the prologue to John's gospel. And this is what he says there. He says, no one's ever seen God, but Jesus makes him known. And even though that's really profound and really mysterious, there's a logic to it that we can trace, right? Of course, Jesus is the one who makes God known, but that is not what he says here. In a million years, I would never expect to hear what he says, but there it is in black and white. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, then God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. In other words, just like Jesus revealed God to a watching and hurting world, that's what we do. That's what our job is now. As we love each other, then God abides in us and we are his presence in the world. In fact, this is what John says, as we love each other and God is present in us, that is how God's love reaches its end goal in this world. That is how his love is perfected. That's how the circuit gets closed on his love. You can hardly understand it, that God would use people like us to do something like that. But there it is, and it is completely true, church. It is completely true. And so here is my prayer for us, for all of us here, for all of us back at my church at Covenant. My prayer is that God would do whatever it takes, that he would use whatever means he has at his disposal to help people like us grow in our ability to apprehend God's love for us, to believe that it's true, and to live out of that love. And I pray that he would do it for our good, and for the good of the broken world that is around us everywhere. Let me pray. Father, I'm just going to pray what I just said, and that is that, that you would use all the means at your disposal to help people like us believe that it's true that you love us. To believe that it's true, not just in a way where we have it written down somewhere in a book, but to believe that it's true deep in our being, deep in our bones, so that we begin to live as new people out of that love. Father, I pray that you would do whatever you need to to defeat all of those really strange and misguided and broken definitions of love that exist all around us, and that you would help us to believe that love always looks like something. It always looks like action that is thick and red-blooded and real and physical and concrete and help us to practice it. Father, please do this for our good and the good of the world around us. And we pray it in the name of Christ. Amen.
So on page nine, um, we have an opportunity now to confess our sins together. This is, I think, a great moment for us um, to be able to say with open hands, as best as we possibly can, God, we haven't loved you with everything that we have, and we haven't loved our neighbors as ourselves. And I'll tell you, when we do this, we don't do it, you know, making promises that we're going to do better next time, or trying to make bargains with God, like, okay, I'll, I'll do this or I'll do that. We just do it with open hands because we know that we have been loved. And we know that when we come in confession, we will be forgiven, not because of what we bring to the table, but because of what Jesus has done for us. So let's join in this responsive confession of sin. Glorious Father in heaven, you have shown your self-giving love by sending your one and only Son as a sacrifice for our sins. You sent your spirit of adoption into our hearts to claim us as your sons and daughters. But we confess that we still have a hard time trusting you. In our pride, we make small and big decisions without asking for your help. Forgive us, we pray. In our apathy, we ignore the poor and powerless, the very people you call us to love. Forgive us, we pray. In our ignorance, we treat you as one who is disinterested in our daily vocations. Forgive us, we pray. In our fear, we work out our salvation through manipulation instead of a proper fear and trembling. Forgive us, we pray. Let's take a few moments to silently confess. <coughs> Father, you sent Jesus your word to bring us truth and your spirit to make us holy. Through them, we come to know the mystery of the faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Amen. Now hear the words of assurance that remind us that when we confess, we are forgiven. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Thanks be to God.